Okay, good afternoon, everyone. It's good to see you. You guys well? Bless the Lord. Thank God for his mercies. They're new every morning. Steadfast love never ceases. We're continuing in our series on um, kingdom values. It's part three, and today we are looking at the matter of money. I'll give you a chance to kind of <laughs> let that soak in. If you're visiting, um, this is probably, it's probably two years since we last spoke about money, so please don't get nervous. We don't speak about it all the time. <laughs> and yet we recognize that the Bible has a lot to say about money. We recognize the importance of faith in the life of the Christian. We are saved by grace through faith. The just shall live by faith. Thank you, bruv. And yet there are 500 verses in the scriptures that speak of faith. We recognize prayer and the importance of prayer in the life of the Christian. And yet likewise, we see that there are 500 verses that speak of prayer in the scriptures. And yet when it comes to money, wealth and possession, there are 2,350 verses that make reference to that issue in scripture. 15% of all that Jesus spoke about was money. And so we see that the Bible has a lot to say about money. And we ought to have a lot to say about money. And so it's timely and necessary and beneficial that we take a look at God's perspective with regards to money. Um, if you want to put your finger in a reference, you can turn to Matthew 6. We're going to get there in a while, but we will get there. So you can prepare yourself now. And as you do that, I'd like to pray, if I may. Thank you, dear Lord God, for your bountiful grace toward us. We do recognize you as our exceedingly great reward. And we thank you. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your mercy and your kindness. We thank you for the fact that truly you are the omnipotent God who is almighty and evidently all-sufficient and we understand that to have you is to have no lack you are our shepherd and we shall have no lack we shall not want for anything why? because we have you and so Lord as we Focus on your word today. We pray that you would stir and stimulate our hearts, that, Lord, you would change our minds, that, Lord, you would challenge us, and that, Lord, you would lead us in righteousness, that you would clarify your heart and mind to us so that as we embrace it, we will become more like you. And so have your way today, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So time, talent and treasure. Today we're looking at treasure, the issue of money. Now, it's not something that we should be nervous about if Jesus is truly Lord of our lives. Because if Jesus is Lord, then he is Lord of all. Jesus is Lord of all, or he is not Lord at all. Jesus is Lord of all, or he's not really Lord at all. And so when it comes to our lives as individuals before God, if we've come to that place of recognition that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, then it stands to reason that that includes our money and all of it. All of it. We've been looking at the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. And right at the end, we see how the master treats the servant who had disregard for his money. It was the master's money. And the servant didn't want to share in the glory. He didn't want to share in the benefits. He didn't want to, to give the benefits over to the master entirely. And so he buried the talent, money. And he attempted to present back to the master what was originally his. And he demonstrated that he was an unfaithful steward of what the master had committed to him. He was seeking to do what he wanted to do with the money. And the master's response was, take the talent from it and give it to the one who's got ten talents. For from everyone, for to everyone who has will more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And so, as I mentioned before a couple of weeks ago, when it comes to money and what we consider to be our money, which is really the Lord's money, actually, it's all submitted to him, for him to have lordship over, to direct the use of. And if we're unable to do that, then it raises the question mark, is Jesus really our Lord? Now, one of the things I appreciate is that there is a need for us as the church to talk about money. And we need to be able to say something more than money is the root of all evil. It's normally what the argument comes down to, right? Well, money is the root of all evil, which is not even right. It's not even true. Money is not the root of all evil. Now some of you are thinking, wow, I'm sure I read that in my Bible. Well, we'll see. But we've got to be able to say something more about money than simply money is the root of all evil. Now, I'm going to give you a second to look at that word. Kind of awkward, right? How do you say that word? Shopocalypse. It's a word I came across on a blog site as they wrote about the riots last August. And 
as they reflected on the riots and the cause of the riots, this was the word that they used to describe the experience. Shapocalypse. Strange kind of word. But it very much typifies and is an example and a concrete reason why we as the church need to be able to speak about money with clarity and confidence in such a way that communicates God's heart and mind regarding money. Let me share you a quote from the blog. They have been raised as consumers, not as citizens, speaking of the writers. Consumers have gadgets. Consumers have the respect of business and government because their jealously guarded and coveted money is the closest thing they will ever possess to the keys of the kingdom. Given the opportunity to take to the streets, they come out in force as consumers, not citizens. Their protest is against their lack of spending power, their lack of a flat screen TV, new pair of trainers. They are the purest incarnation of our free market consumer ideology. They are competing against the law for the best results a consumer can ever hope for. And they are winning. Competing against the law for the best results a consumer can ever hope for. Something for nothing. We all like a bargain, right? We all like freeness. Were the writers any different? See, we're just like them. And they're just like us. And what we see demonstrated in the riots was the height of materialism and consumerism. The Shapocalypse culture. You know, we're familiar with mystery shoppers and even shopaholics. And this was just an extreme of the same culture. And you see, materialism says you are what you have. It used to be you are what you eat, right? <laughs> Forget the food part now. We're going deeper. You are what you have. What you possess is what you are. And all we have is all we are. And so there is the consumer drive to get more, more, more. It's like Sammy was saying during communion. The old and the new. <laughs> well, out with the iPhone 4, in with the 4S. Out with the iPad 2, in with the iPad 3. I mean, you can see I'm still using a beat-up old-school Mac right here. <laughs> it's that YOLO attitude of Isaiah 22:13. Eat, drink, 
and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You only live once. And you see, the sad thing is this. God created us to love people and use things. But materialists love things and use people. We're created to love people and use things. But we love things and use people. And when we look at the time in which we live, we recognize that it's common characteristics of the age. You are what you have. Is that what it all comes down to? 3D TV now, HD ain't good enough. You know, you've got to have the unlimited package on your phone. All of the channels. Mobile TV. Now, we can look at the culture, we can look at society and see that as a reality, but what about in the church? In the church? No, not in the church, right? Well, let me share with you a quote or just a, a summary of a quote from the New York Times that went the Friday edition, this Friday, May the 4th, edition of the New York Times. And they featured a story, and it was a lead story, that spoke of a family at war. This was the reason. The prosperity gospel preached by Paul and Janice Crouch, who built a single station into the world's largest Christian television network, has worked out very well for them. In 2010, they had an income of $93 million. Paul and Jan have his and her matching mansions either side of a California street within a gated community. Hers on one side, his on the other. Likewise, the same again in Florida. Next to their company, the Holy Land Experience. They have two private jets. One of a paltry eight million. And the other, the big one, 49 million dollars worth. Now their granddaughter, who was previously in charge of finances, has come out exposing the wildly inappropriate and possibly criminal use of funds. Now this was all reported in the New York Times on Friday. It's public domain. The lawyer for TBN, that's the, the company that Paul and Jan Crouch have founded, offered a broad defense saying, TBN's prominence and programs are great. He said that 
the spending that some people call extravagant or opulent is necessary to convey the ministry's position of accomplishment. It's necessary. Albert Mola, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, quoted in the article, says, Prosperity theology is a false theology. The prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. He went on to say that, in fact, TBN has been an embarrassment to the majority of conservative evangelical Christians. And yet, relatives and former employees agreed that Paul and Janice Crouch seem to have deep spiritual feelings and believe they are doing the Lord's work. A belief, according to a former employee, that seemed to justify almost any extravagance. The lawyer quotes again on behalf of TBN. Others may do things differently and may criticize TBN for how it operates, its look, its doctrine and belief. But what is absolutely clear is that TBN, with God's grace, has succeeded where most others have failed. It has succeeded. And so that is the badge of validation, success. Hmm. The prosperity gospel says, I have, therefore I am righteous. Because I have, because I am blessed, I am righteous. And let's just consider for a moment the messages of the prosperity gospel. Material blessings equals righteousness. You're a king's kid, and as a child of the king, you should be blessed, and you should be in abundance. And so, material blessings become directly equated with righteousness. Does this not suggest that God's ultimate role is to serve you material blessings? Hmm. Does it not go on to su suggest that material things are greater than God? If God is a servant who serves out material blessings as being the ultimate thing that we are to aspire to, then does that not make those things more attractive and more needed than even him? It could even go on to suggest that material blessings are God. And so we see the deification, the deifying, the exalting of the material thing. Now, we can point the finger at society. And we can point the finger at this consumer-oriented, consumer-driven society when it comes to the August riots. 
But my question is, how much has this message contributed to the thinking of those people who were out on the streets looting? Many of whom may have come from homes where the prosperity gospel is rife. Church attenders. You see, what this says to the rioting looter is, the end justifies the means. The end is righteous. Material blessings are good. In fact, they're godly. And the writer says, it's long waiting for God to give them to me. And so I'll just take a shortcut. I'm still blessed though, right? Because I have material things at the end of it, right? And this is really what God wants for me, right? Hmm. And so the writer doesn't genuinely have a sense of the fear of God because the goal ultimately is a godly one even though they're not going about it in a godly way but God understands he knows the hardship that I go through he knows that that, you know they're all racist and they're not giving out jobs and so he'll give me a squeeze you see What does it suggest? It suggests that it's all about success. This is the message and the mantra that is promoted. Success. And so when they come back with the goods, they feel successful. But what about righteousness? Are we more concerned with our young people being bright or being right? Are we more concerned with them being successful or being faithful? It doesn't have to be faithfulness at the expense of, but surely that has to be the priority. Surely we as the church are supposed to sound that message with clarity. That money is not God. It's cream. Christ rules everything around me. You know, back in the day it was cash rules everything around me. But no. This is the cream of God, the cream of the crop. That Christ rules everything around me. And that's the message we're supposed to be able to convey with clarity. And yet what people hear more so is a prosperity theology that says, I have and so I am righteous. Based on proof texts, scripture taken out of context, as a justification they say Jesus was rich they gambled for his expensive and costly robe which they neglect to recognize was actually given to him 
as he was being tormented, tortured and persecuted. They neglect the fact that in Luke 2.24, Mary and Jesus' stepdad Joseph offered the offering, the sacrificial offering of the poor when they came to dedicate him in the temple. Now, why would, do, why would they do that if they were, they were balling, if they were rolling in big cash? You know, I mean, the, 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 the magi, the wise men had come and laden them with gold and frankincense and myrrh, such that they couldn't carry, right, we are told. And yet, they're offering the sacrifice that was a concession to the poor. We see Jesus during his ministry in Luke 8 verse 3 being provided for him and the disciples by well-to-do women. Which, I mean, that wasn't the done thing in the culture being provided for by women. And so we see the God who is rich in all things subject himself to the likeness of sinful man. Allowing himself to be provided for by those whom he made. <laughs> Crazy. Ultimately, we see that prosperity gospel is an attempt to sanctify materialism. It's an attempt to sanctify materialism it is an attempt to exalt and glorify self-gratification. The message of prosperity gospel is God exists for you. God does not exist for you. That is a statement that some of us will wrestle with. Because it challenges our concept of God. What is the chief end of man? And someone said, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's all about him. He is the prize. And what the prosperity gospel, the prosperity theology plainly does is ignore the warnings of scripture about mammon and so let's go into Matthew 6 we're going to take it from verse 19 do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A challenge to change our aspirations from an earthly one to a, to a heavenly one. It's a challenge to find security, not in the abundance of the things of our lives, but in the greatness of our God. Don't lay up treasures on earth, but lay up treasures in heaven. 
It's a different goal. It's a different mindset. As the cross movement said back in the day, it's the heaven's mentality. Why? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be. That's where your affections, your desires, your considerations and contemplations, your aspirations and purposing, that's where it will be, where your treasure is. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? They say the eyes are the windows to the soul. But this verse isn't talking about the eyes being the windows to the soul in the way that I can peer in and know what's in your heart and just discern about you. And yes, the Lord is speaking to me. But actually, it's like windows with curtains. You open the curtains in the morning and you expect to see light coming in. If like me, on, I can't remember what they called that day, if it was Black Friday or whatever, back in 1987. And power was out, everything. There was a big storm, trees were down. Looked outside, it was pitch black. Lord, the rapture's come. I've been left behind. The place was in darkness. There was no light coming in to the room. And so it's saying that the eyes are the lamp, the means by which light enters the soul. So if your eye is healthy, that which you fix your sights upon, that which you desire, that which you focus on, if it's good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your focus, your desire, the gaze that you have set upon something is bad, then your body will be full of darkness. And if then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, I like the old school term that's used. In the newer translations it says, you cannot serve two masters, you cannot serve God and money. Old school they say God and mammon. 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 Riches personified as a deity. It is riches that are exalted, trusted, and worshipped. You see, this speaks of more than a, a mere change of values. 
You know, someone can go from being a capitalist to a socialist, and they can change their value system. This is speaking more than just a change of values. It's speaking about worship. That which is worshipped. That which is trusted, that which is adored. Now it's interesting because in various cultures and in, at various times, the, the, the idea of mammon has been very common. To the extent that artists have even attempted to try and depict what this deity of mammon might look like. Here are a few pictures. Lovely, right? This is the money. This is the depiction of money that people are loving. The deity of money that people are loving and worshipping. Here it says, steal little and they throw you in jail. Steal a lot and they make you king. <laughs> Sounds true to our time, right? These are all depictions of that God called Mammon. In some occultic writings, Mammon was described as hell's ambassador to England. We're not to worship Mammon. In verse 25, the Lord goes on to say, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you, eat, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus is saying you are not what you have. You are not defined by what you possessed. Your life does not depend on what you have in the bank. Some of you are gonna, you need to say amen. <laughs> Your life does not depend on what you have in the bank. Life is more than the abundance of the things that we possess. And so in verse 33, the Lord says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Money is not evil. Money is an inanimate object. The power and influence of money is completely dependent on the power that is given to it. The confidence that people place in it, the value that people give it. I mean, why would the Lord say these things would be added to you? provisions, 
necessary food and clothing if we seek first the kingdom of God. Money is not evil. In 1 Timothy 6.10 it says, the love of money is the root of all evil. In some translations it says, the love of money is a root of all evil. And so it's about loving God and actively seeking the kingdom. Not just looking for its coming, well Jesus is going to come one day, and so in the meantime I'll just do my thing. Make my money. Spend my money. Hoard my money. It's my money. And when Jesus comes, I will gladly leave it all behind. (laughs) Now, seek, pursue, actively give yourself to the establishing of the kingdom and God's righteousness. It's not passive by any means. It's an active and engaged pursuit. And so we recognize that the antidote isn't anti-materialism or as was once the view back in the days of the monks and the monasteries, they call it ascetism, where they looked at material things as bad. No, God made the world and he said it is good. And that included the gold that was in the ground and the diamonds that was in the ground and he said it's good. And so in and of itself, it's not bad. And so what are we to do? In Luke 16 verse 9, we are told to use money In fact, to use mammon to make friends for ourselves. Remember we read that in Luke 16? The parable of the shrewd steward? We are to use money with a kingdom agenda in mind, with an eternal agenda in mind. We're not to run from it, and we're not to worship it but merely use it as a tool for kingdom endeavors. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God will make provision for his own according to our necessary needs. And so we underline the fact that no one can serve two masters. Some people live to work. That's not supposed to be our testimony. I remember working at the Royal Albert Hall when I was doing a second job for a number of reasons. Some of them partly ministry. We were going into schools at the time and we'd bought some equipment and we had, we had a, 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 an arrangement where we could pay off the equipment interest-free and it meant we could go into schools and do assemblies and do classes and be equipped to do so. 
with that money was always also working towards trying to take the family on a holiday. Second job. There was a guy that I worked with and he had three other jobs. He was doing at least 80 hours a week work. He was a mobile DJ. He worked in Sainsbury's. He worked at the Albert Hall and he had another job as well, which was his full-time job. I used to see this guy on, on post at the Royal Albert Hall on his position, he's doing his door duty, leaned up like this. <laughs> he was on it. That's what you call on the grind. And one day I sat down with him and I said, why are you doing this? I thought this guy must have some big debts. You know, he must have some you know, major outgoings. And his answer to me was, you know what? I just want to make sure I'm all right in the future. There's not much else that I'm going to do with my life right about now. I'm single. And this to me is important because I'm providing for my future. And so he was saving all this money he was accumulating. It's not even like he was one of those guys and he was driving a big car and you see him just dripping with jewelry and the finest designer clothes and he was like, bossy. No. He was a frugal guy. He was one of them guys that looked like he shopped down Oxfam or trade, like frugal, thrifty. Certain people looked at him and said, that guy's tight, you know. And yet, he was looking for security in money. I remember years ago, when I heard about the um, pension scandal for those people who were in um, was it Robert Maxwell's companies and in his pension schemes. Money's gone. And then you hear about countries, Iceland, Greece, Security's gone. What can you really trust in? Money? <laughs> you see, it's not, that be, not, it's not that we are to live to work. Yes, we work to live. And yet, even that is not entirely true for us because God is the source of our life. And if, as he has done to many, there is a call to ministry, and we're saying, well, I'm not going to work. I'm going to have to give up my job and go and do the ministry that God's called me to. You think that God's not going to provide? We're going to hear more about John Wesley next week when we consider what do we do with our money? How do we store up treasures in heaven using the treasures that we have on earth. And John Wesley was committed to God, used greatly, mightily as a preacher of God.
And he was so committed that there came a point in his life where he lived on 2% of his income. Notice, I didn't say he gave 2% of his income. He lived on 2% of his income. And he said this. He said, get all you can, save all you need, and give away everything else. And with that principle, he arrived at that place in his life where he lived on 28 pound a week. Sorry, a month, 28 pounds as he received 1,400 each month. And so, when we appreciate that God is our source, that God is our master, a master who looks after his own, it's liberating. It's freeing. It causes us to be relieved of the burden because he's got us. And so next week we'll continue and look in more detail at what we're to do with our money. What are we to do with our money? I mean, are we supposed to give a tenth? Are we supposed to save? How much should we save? What about loans and investments and what about dealing with debt well we'll give some consideration to that next week let's pray dear Lord we do thank you for your faithfulness to us we do thank you Lord for the fact that you have delivered us from the worship of money that we are no longer slaves to mammon, being manipulated and dictated to by insecurities, uncertainties, and greed. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to provide for your people our necessary needs. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us. Help us to have, have a healthy view. Help us to have a healthy outlook on money. Continue to instruct us, Lord, and continue to challenge us, Lord, as to our motives, our aspirations, and ambitions, Lord. Have your way in us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.